Welcome to Sugar Nutmeg. This is Ruth. And this is Alexandra. Brazil and Indonesia both lie along the equator, and besides the climate, there are a lot of other parallels between the two countries in terms of their history, economy, politics, ecosystem, and society. In this episode, we're very excited to talk to Daniel Lee, a Brazilian-Indonesian artist. Daniel's project Toko Buku Liong, titled after their grandparents' successful comic book store in Semarang, is trilingual in English, Bahasa Indonesia, and Brazilian Portuguese. Presented through four chapters on an interactive website, it tells a poignant story about family as well as the sociopolitical forces behind their grandparents' migration from Semarang to Sao Paulo, even though the comic book they created, called Wiro Anakrimba, was a major canon in the Indonesian cultural movement during nationalization time. A big theme we explore in this episode is the coloniality of power, which is what happens when former colonialism has left a country and yet the systems of oppression remain. We also talk about cultural commonalities, tracing latitude lines, and the perception of time. Daniel's work is rooted in deep reflection and deep research, transcending borders and breaking the myth of origin. Well, this might sound like a long podcast, but it's all juicy. And we hope you have some good food to accompany you while you listen to this. We were, as a family, the first family to migrate from Indonesia to Brazil. And uh, my, my grandfather went first to Johnny in 1958. And a few months later, my grandmother, Onkin Neo, with uh, eight children, uh, plus a former employee from Tokoboko Leong, they went there. And then they have another child in Brazil. So the thing was that we were quite isolated, not because we wanted to, but because there were not other Indonesians for a long time. And there were a lot of hardships. I was like, when I was kid, child, until teenager, there was like this yearly meeting of Indonesian people uh, in a different city from Sao Paulo. So, from Sao Paulo, which is a very large city, maybe we can compare to Jakarta, you know, uh, I never met and grew with other Indonesians or mixed uh, people from Indonesian ascendants. And the whole information or access to it was via my family. And that we're talking about pre-internet, you know, uh, and then... In my teen years and early adulthood, then internet starts to come, but then we have another problem, which is uh, language. And I was taught very little, like Bahasa Indonesia, and, or some words, like my, my family, they speak a mix of Java, um, Bahasa Indonesia, but the old Bahasa Indonesia from the 50s. Yeah. And mm. I think probably they had some Dutch words mm, in mix, mm. you know so then they kind of like had probably their own their own bahasa their own language inside of the house and then did you guys speak portuguese brazilian portuguese like did your family speak portuguese yes uh what happened was that within the house like the, the family house of my, my father's family to my indonesian family to my father's side so they kept speaking indonesian inside of the house and then mm. outside the house, they needed to speak mm. very fast and learn how to speak very fast mm. uh, Brazilian Portuguese. And the thing is that the way they needed to learn was super for survival because 
like they never heard in the 50s Portuguese before. The way my grandfather tried to learn was in the boat, like 40 days to get to Brazil. It was having two dictionaries, one Bahasa Indonesia English and then English Portuguese. Mm-hmm. And then he would have to assume how it was being spoken because he never heard before. That's before mm-hmm. internet. You know? mm-hmm. So in this sense, what I had as a, as a reference to Indonesia was very little, like meeting some people on and off, knowing some words, but maybe, maybe mostly food. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then the first time I went to Indonesia, my biggest question was, what is family? What is culture? What are the things that I carry in my subjectiveness is something very specific from Lee family or what, the, what is that not actually family thing? It's cultural thing. It's, it's Japanese, it's Indonesia or on mm. and on and on, you know, like, mm. and the first time I went there to Jogja to Indonesia, this thing starts to appear to me. And then I right away thought I need longer time here. I need to be at least a year here. Mm. Then a year and a half later, I was able to to move to Georgia for a year and a half. So like your grandfather got on a boat from Samarang to Sao Paulo with other Indonesians or what, what was that? My grandfather went first so he could find a job and house. And then later my grandmother with eight children mm-hmm. and, and one uh, former employee who later became, mm-hmm. uh, he married one of the, the daughters, mm-hmm. my aunt. So what happened was that he needed to take, they needed to take a plane to Singapore and then from Singapore, a boat. And they needed to say they were going to Brazil for tourism. And they were preparing to go. They were able to sell some properties and things, but not everything. Uh, and they, there was like one episode that my aunt told me that my grandfather was alone. And then when he, he met like this officer from some bureaucratic level from Indonesia and then asked, what, where are you going to Brazil? How much money do you have? And then he showed the money. Like, this is too much money because you're going for tourism. And then he took the money. Oh, so, shit. Wow. So then all, and then that made it more precarious because he was hoping to have let that money to make yeah. living there. Yeah. So the migration was very traumatic, very, very traumatic. Mm, mm, yeah. So ha- have you found the answer of why your grandpa chose Brazil to migrate? Or is the, it still the, a mystery? Make, it, make it, talk about, it was a, a, a dive into to the stories, to the emotions, and dancing with the dead, you know? And many things went to the grave. And I think it's quite good that a lot of things are still mysterious. So... We don't know why. They always said, and this is also I, when I was asking my aunt, why Brazil? Why Brazil? Why to migrate? And they always said, for the future of my children, both of them said. But they never said why specifically Brazil. Well, it's also being said by some of my aunts that they had two options, either Canada or Brazil. Mm. And then there's some narrative. Some aunts said that in the last moment, Canada shut borders. Other aunts said that actually they chose Brazil because it would be closer to weather or mm-hmm. to uh, culture. Mm-hmm. And plus, Brazil was about to debut Brasilia, which was, was the new capital. And Brasilia okay. had all this feeling of future, you know, like for many years, Brazil had this, the country of the future. Mm-hmm. And we still have this phrase to nowadays, which is quite problematic because the future never arrived. Never worked, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, in, but still, why Brazil 
when now that I'm having more access to information, there, when that time people were migrating from Indonesia, they were going to either Singapore or yeah. some other countries in Southeast Asia or Netherlands. But then why Brazil? Why to become the first Indonesian family, as I know so far? Why to be isolated? Why mm. to start from new, you know? And also with Tokobukunyang, we were able to find other more sustainable why they wanted to move, but why exactly Brazil? For me, it's still quite mysterious. And I think it's good that we still have this mysteries, you know? Yeah. Um, on your conversation with Juliana Dos Santos, you said that when you first arrived in Indonesia, you said that you had to access the power of specific silence. Can you talk more about what that means? For me... Uh, we can go more into details this, like difficulty of me understanding as culturally and subjectively as someone Asian or as you say in Brazil, like a, a yellow person, you know, like a, and not white. And how to go to Indonesia was and do this project to understand layers of erasure and how also being in Brazil and the, the imperialism and the nationalism that has that erases identities and me myself being able to understand what has been erased what is not being understood what i carry that is not being comprehended and through clashes with friends and people from sao paulo brazil with our way to be with each other a lot of people would question the way that i am and to respond emotionally and specifically a lot of moments i felt i needed silence And with some other diasporic people from Sao Paulo, I started to bring this topic about their perception with silence and, and how maybe for a lot of people in Brazil, silence is the opposite of noise. And for them, it can be very disruptive or very annoying and hard to deal with. While for me and other people who I was talking with the, this diaspora and people from Jogja as well, how silence is something else. It, it has matter, it has meaning, it's communication, uh, it's It's not the absence of something, you know? And this is something I'm still relating, but for me, it's also a place to be, you know, uh, a place to deal with the world, a place to deal with many things. And because my mom is Brazilian and my father is Indonesian, the ways I needed and still need to find a way to communicate with them are very differently. Like with my mom, I can have this langsung uh, conversational, like one-to-one, and then we talk about the problem, blah, blah, blah. With my father, that's a different thing. I, I can't with that. Um, mm. Other means, I'm still finding other means to do it. Um, mm. What I'm bringing this example is, it made me realize that that shows a difference of culture. And then the most complex thing is that I carry both. Mm. And <laughs> so there, there's moments that I need to talk, talk, talk. And there's moments that I need complete silence. Mm. So mm. it is a, a mix. You know? Right. Mm. Do you think that is Indonesian quality or Japanese quality? Because Japanese something... in comparison to other um, ethnic groups in Indonesia, they're more like, I don't know, like more... W- within. Um, what Lombard, is reserved. Reserved, yeah. Because yeah. there are other ethnic groups in Indonesia that are known to be very like loud and like, like frontal, da, 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 yeah. da, da, like direct and yeah, frontal. Uh, my whole experience is very much uh, in Java and Jogja. Uh, And, and Central Java mainly, and also with Java ethnicity. Uh, I, I haven't had yet experience with other ethnicities to know the, the contrast and, and proximities. I've heard a lot about it, 
But for me, being Jogja, I felt like, huh, this is a city that looks like me, you know, like finally. <laughs> While many times in many places in Brazil, what I mean, like a city like me, I would see in the way people would be socially, I would connect. Mm. It, something would make sense, you know, uh, and it was great, you know, to finally find a place. Right, right. I'm curious, like, yeah. why you choose Jogja? Uh, you have this like no, it was online, right? Did you go to Samarang to see the the ruins? We did, we did, we did. Like uh, I did, I went twice, like first time in 2017, and then uh, I was with in the phone with my the oldest aunt, and we were trying to find the, the building, but at the time we didn't. I thought I found the building, but it was not the one. And then later with Adelina, and then we were crossing. Uh, um, Research, we were able to find a specific location. And in a way, I think it's good because at the first time I went there, I wouldn't be prepared to find everything ruined, you know, like emotionally. And then the second time, it made more sense, right. you know, and, and I was more prepared for it. So that's also something important. I needed maturity to go to Indonesia. And the reason I stayed in Georgia was, okay, I, I was there for the first time in 2017 and I, I met some people. So it would be easier to be in Georgia and then to find, because for me, the experience to go to Indonesia, it was like starting from zero, you know, like I didn't know how to, to speak the language. I didn't know how to uh, go up and down. I didn't know how to drive motorcycle. So I learned and I got motorcycle there. Social rules. So it was very much a process of reborn, you know, a slow process. So going to Jogja, I felt it would be better because then I'll also have some people who I know that to arrive. And also the thing about Jogja having the center of the Javanese culture and a lot of connection with the arts, either uh, contemporary and traditional. I also thought connecting via culture would be a way in a non-verbal sense to connect other layers of myself, you know? So, and the first time I went, I also loved Jogja. <laughs> <laughs> mm. So you right. still have like uh, relatives in Indonesia or no? Or this is the That's, one that came from like Brazil to Indonesia and went to the ruins of uh, Toko Bukolion with you? So in... 95, 94, my and my, my grandfather, he was still alive. They went to Samarang and then they met a lot of people, like former employees and relatives. So this other mm-hmm. she gave me the, the list of the names. I, I did a research online. Lots of them died. Others I couldn't find. So it was very important for me that Toko Bukulion also had media support. Uh, and as comes as fairly it's a practice in the arts so you put in the media what's happening what's going on i also was important for me that this media was not only related with arts but also because i also wanted to reach out for other people that not are not interested in culture and arts then through and after Tokobukulian was done there was an article in Tempo magazine about the project a quite large article and then a relative One day opened the magazine and saw it was his family there. And then he contacted us. But the thing was, he's like the grandchild of my grandfather brother. So his father is the cousin of my father, but they changed names. Mm. And my family, we didn't change names. They adopted Indonesian names? Like they, they took Indonesian an names. assimilated name? Yes, yes. So they sh- if they didn't, they, he would also be Lee, like my last name. 
because they did that, we couldn't find them. There was no way to reach out. So he found us. And that was very emotional because there was like this full circle. And there was also knowing, I'm still, it's early contact that we're having. But there's also like this parallel narrative of the family that went and the family that stayed. It made other layers of understanding politically as well. Mm -hmm. I'm really curious about what your family's response and reaction was, particularly because I feel like in Indonesia, like ethnically Chinese Indonesians are very silent because if you say something wrong just a tiny bit, like it's so easy for people to attack you and, mm. um, you know, endanger your family. Um, mm. And so I think a lot of people, even though they have things to say, they just decide to, oh, you know, like it's more important to, to just like stay safe and lay low mm. and stay silent. So do you feel like after your family moved to Brazil that that kind of internalized silence have gone away or do you still feel like they still have that? Or well, I, I guess like just what is the reaction? Because I feel like I would imagine most, most Chinese Indonesian families will be very anxious about making their history public. Well, first, uh, we didn't identify ourselves as Chinese Indonesians. We know we were Chinese descendants, but we were Indonesians. And that's very much a reflect of how Brazil built nationality. If you're firstborn of anybody from anywhere in the world in the territory of Brazil, you're Brazilian. Mm -hmm. And of course, there's like many layers of complexity within that. And also there is this whole quickly assimilation. That's the process as I read of Brazil, of nationality. Everything, everybody's Brazilian. So if you spend the majority of your life in Brazil, but you were not born there, you're Brazilian. If you were born in Brazil and you spend the majority of your life in another country, you're Brazilian. That's good. And That's the opposite yeah. of Indonesia. And Indonesia is the opposite. It, it is the opposite. And maybe that was a little bit easier for my parents, for my grandparents and family to establish themselves there in, mm. in Brazil. It was mm. they were able to be with their identity more free. But the reality is that we're also Japanese, and that's the thing I, I, I also point out. Like why you? Because for me, the first time in 2017, there was also an article in Temple that the journalist got very interesting in the narrative about my family. And then the reason why I went back because this journalist wrote. Uh, Daniel Lee, whose grandfather uh, was the famous Chinese comic book artist, Li Zhongling. And then that phrase for me, like, famous? What do you mean by famous? You never thought, been recognized before, right? Well, I, and even like from the narrative within the family, I thought yeah. it was like famous in the neighborhood, you know, like very independent, mm. very small. Mm. And then why are you calling my grandfather Chinese? Mm. That was the second question. Like, why are you calling yourself Chinese? You know, like, we're Indonesians. And so that was already like two big questions that I needed to go about. Okay, there, I see there's some complexity regarding ethnicity here because you're excluding us by calling us just Chinese, mm -hmm. as, as I read it. Mm -hmm. And the other thing was, was the dimension that the work they did became here. And more and more I was able to figure out it got really big and we didn't know that. And possibly even my grandparents didn't know how big it became their comic book. And then the thing about the silence that you mentioned, they kept that so much. You know? there, there were many things that it was not possible to talk. There were many things that they didn't want to talk because might have hurt so much. Like even the fact, I remember questioning my father, how you didn't know that 
uh, we don't actually buy Indonesia was so famous or other things. And then they say like, to start a new life from scratch can be very painful to remember the life you had before. And they had like bookstore, they had uh, social privilege, they were creating. My grandmother specifically was very avant-garde for the time as a creative, as an entrepreneur. And then they go to Brazil, they need to sell food, they don't have money, they're poor, they don't know how to relate with the, the culture, they are easily assimilated with other ethnicity groups, they go to racism, many hardships. And I do understand, you know, that if you think about the past you had, you, you cannot have the presence and think about the future because there was a lot of trauma in this migration. So then doing the project and being in, in, in Indonesia, then I start to understand more the context of this complexity about being Chinese Indonesian or uh, the whole political issues around it. And in one way, because I didn't know much about Indonesia when I arrived, it kind of like this naiveness that I have, like making questions and bringing issues to topic, I was being able to make conversations that were taboo, you know, and then people would have to break that silence. Can I ask, like, what? Uh, like, very basic question, like, why were Chinese excluded or start to talk with people and then people would silently and whisper me like a secret, you know, I'm also Chinese descendant, you know. Mm. And then, like, why are you telling me like this is a secret, you know? It's funny because um, <laughs> I'm just laughing because I also grew up here. And when I went back there as an adult, I was also very naive. Like I didn't know what to say and what not to say and the things that I should not say. And I think like for the first four or five months, you know, people would be just like, does this person not know how to be culturally sensitive? And it's just because I didn't know the the background and I had to rediscover all of that. So I, I guess like I relate to that. Like I didn't know I, I'm not supposed to ask those questions or I'm not supposed to say those things. Uh, yeah, but do you know how to speak in vision since birth? Uh, yeah, well, yes, and it's funny. I, I know how to speak Indonesia now fluently, yeah. Because also because I, when I arrived in Jogja the second time, then I started learning the language and everything needed to be, uh, I needed to use English. Then maybe I, I would have, like m this experience that I've been there, I understand it was like a, a transaction moment, you know, because everything needed to be spoken in English. I would need to have a one-on-one -on -one course about a lot of things. And mm -hmm. I'm still learning Indonesian because the next time in the future I go there, I can have more direct. Mm -hmm. I connect with you very much about this cultural sensitive because my fear was not to have any colonizer postures to impose mm -hmm. anything coming from the West as well. And I would, I went there like very pelan pelan, you know, like very slowly, very taking time and listening more. Um, which in a way was quite free in one moment, you know, because coming from Brazil, everything was hyper politicized, you know, like my gaze towards everything, my relationship with everything. Mm -hmm. I would see everything with many, many layers of politics, mm -hmm. which was annoying. Also, this moment of arriving in Indonesia and having this one-on-one, -on -one, this first encounter and having other ways to do this encounter, which would be through the other languages of our human existence we have, you know, we're not only communicating through voice, through the images or through listening, you know, there's so many other layers. And that's maybe, again, that goes the importance of silence, you know, 
so maybe the first month I was in Indonesia was about finding myself within this important silence, you know. Mm-hmm. But also we were talking about this other silence, which is also this agony that yeah. brings a lot of agony. Mm-hmm. Overall, it's like how to deal with it in a non-binary way. Like how to also think, okay, if there is a lot of taboo with Chinese ethnicities, then why is there taboo? What happened politically? If there was like a lot of exclusions, what makes this exclusion happen? Not only see from one perspective of someone who were only persecuted, but also try to, I'm still trying to understand and try to learn what caused these persecutions, you know? Right. Yeah. Do you feel any difference in terms of treatment of Chinese Indonesian in Jogja and Semarang? Because I feel like in Semarang, they're more, the Chinese Indonesian or Chinese Japanese community is bigger than in, in comparison in Jogja. That was also something that Adelina was always, Adelina who was uh, the co-creator of yeah. the book, you know, with I, uh, Adelina was always trying to navigate and find where did my family fit in this many Chinese Indonesian communities in Semarang. Mm-hmm. And then every time she would bring something, I was like, no, also not, no, they were not involved politically. They were not part of this religion. And what I felt from that, that my family, they were quite on their own, you know, doing their thing. And that's Mm -hmm. it. They were not, as I know, they were not politically engaged with anything. Mm -hmm. And then, because also when I arrived there, I realized not only I am like a mix, but also I come from a family who's also mixed because I have this diversity of aunts and uncles who have features very, uncle, uh, very Japanese, you know, or more fair skin. So then I thought, well, my family actually is quite mixed, you know, mm. which goes back to where they were in society in a very quite mixed way. A lot of people in Georgia, I thought they resembled very much my family. And then in Semarang, I saw people who were, would have more features Chinese. I, I, I know that features Chinese can be very broad and are very diverse. But this mixed, mixed uh, aesthetics or mixed sense that I saw with my family, I would see a lot of people that would look like my family in Georgia, actually, than in mm. Semarang. Semarang, I would be able to differentiate quite easily. For me personally, I find it funny because I am the kind of person who has trouble differentiating the, the features of people. I guess my friends tell me, it's like, how can you not know that this person is Javanese? How can you not know that this person is Chinese? And I'm like, it's so hard for me to tell the difference. I'm like, how do you guys tell the difference? And I guess it's like, you know, that that in itself is is like, that that's hard because I guess like, I know a lot of ethnically Chinese people who have dark skin or mm. um, like Javanese or Sundanese or even like Padang people from Sumatra who have like smaller eyes. And so mm. it's like, it's always like, I feel like ambiguous for me to like make a distinction. Yeah. And one of the questions that I also ask is like, you know, so this discrimination and violence, like you want to target people, but then how do you even know? What if the person that you're targeting is like Javanese, like is not even Chinese. It's like you're targeting the wrong, you know, and so I've been, I've just been thinking of that. (laughs) Yeah, That's what you say. I start to think a lot about the story and my family itself, you know, like I also like, how did they know they were Chinese? You know, like how they differentiated, like why were they targeted? 
under all those changes that Indonesia was going through. The laws, yeah. In this group, when they produce one of the most important political, mm. cultural comic books or cultural uh, pieces of Indonesia, mm. that was, as my critical reading of Wirana Kerala Indonesia, it was a, a propaganda for the new Indonesian, you know? Mm. Like, I grew, I went to school in Brazil with... Uh, majority Asian students, like East Asian, yeah, or like uh, mostly Korean, Japanese, and Chinese. And then there's a lot of diaspora, a lot, a big diaspora of Chinese. So what I'm coming is like very personal perspective. Like people in Samaran, I would for me they would resemble the Chinese I met in mm-hmm. in São Paulo, mm-hmm. and I would see São Paulo. And then people from Georgia, sometimes I would like, wow, this person has a mixed feature. I see some features of Arab. I see some features of, mm. unquote, Java. I would start to see these differences. Mm. And then that would inform me regarding this project of the creation of an Indonesian post the Netherlands independence in 45. You know, they needed to create this an narrative, identity. which also Brazil needed to do that as well yeah. uh, in the late 18th century, you know. Yeah. This actually brings me to my next question about the Asian diaspora in Brazil. So you mentioned that you couldn't really relate because the other diaspora were Chinese, Korean, and Japanese, and there was not a lot of big Indonesian diaspora. And I guess I also only learned about this recently, and I'm curious about your thoughts on it. So Uh, There was a book called The Jakarta Method that just came out and the writer, he made a lot of connections between Indonesia and Brazil and the U.S.-backed coup um, and the dictatorship. And so from the book, from what I've gathered is that there was a wave of Indonesian migrants who escape Indonesia to try to come to Brazil to look for like the future and a new life. And then they realize like, oh, you know, this is also a dictatorship. But did did you, were you connected to that diaspora or did those people that come from Indonesia during, you know, 65 that time, are they all scattered? Oh, what does it mean scattered? Sorry, like all over the place? Yeah. Yeah. Not, not concentrated. Uh, well, the, the, the book... It came while I was doing Tokoboku Nyong, so a lot of people mm-hmm. start talking about it. Mm-hmm. I haven't read it yet. It was very good to listen to uh, Vincent talking from your podcast. The thing was that my family went a little bit before all this uh, movement. Before 1965, yeah. 65, yeah, yeah, yeah. But in Brazil, 65 was hardcore. You know, like I grew up with my parents talking about, they would be very careful to talk publicly about freedom of speech because they would know that would be somebody infiltrated. Like if they were in college, it would be very likely that someone would be infiltrated. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there were a lot of talks and we know nowadays that people were being tortured, people were being killed, who were against the government. And then later on, as I was starting to connect with Indonesia, seeing the movement that of killing, who specifically talk about that, mm-hmm. that was a lot, you know, like, yeah. and, some of these informations who I know they're going to be very big and after I know about them, it's going to change everything. I need time to process the emotion. Like in Tokoboku Nyong, where Chenetti team and Adelina did this amazing, crazy timeline 
with the political facts that were going on around the Chinese Indonesians and the birth and the things my family did, that was, it's crazy to have that, you know? Mm. And I was the one, the person who was translated to Portuguese, Brazilian Portuguese. And I did it to the last moment, you know, because I knew after I read all the details about that, a lot of my perception would mm. change and a lot of feelings would come towards mm. it. And maybe that's why I haven't read the book yet. Because I know once I read it, it's going to change. It's going to cause a lot of emotions. Mm-hmm. And they're not pleasing emotions, you know. Uh, that's not the first thing that I feel. Specifically, when we're talking about trauma, pain, colonization, and this advent of new imperialism. Mm-hmm. So I understand that in both stories in Brazil and in Indonesia, the world was having this communist and, and capitalist war. And then the United States started to infiltrate CIA mm. with to sponsor the, the, the capitalist dictatorship, military capitalist dictatorship. Mm. And it happened, you know, and all this country became extreme capitalist later. Mm. Uh, and but that I see as an imperialism and colonizing act that the United States is a big colonizer country, you know. Mm. Mm-hmm. And how also after that, every country starts to colonize itself within, you know, so uh, yeah, uh, a, a specific temperate uh, colonialities then started to happen. And then mm-hmm. going back again to Java, how also I start to see my grandparents' comic books as this project, because there are images that are traveling other islands and starting fights and wars and the whole comic books about this propaganda of this heterosis male of this mm. contemporary Indonesia who, and the values and shaping, I was shocked when mm. I saw the whole thing because I, I hadn't had access to it. I, I only had access until I went to, to live in Georgia, 31, 32, to one edition of Widow. Mm. And then arriving in Indonesia, I was able to have a bootleg copy of all of them. Uh, mm. And then I was like, what? Mm. What did they do? You know, like, what is yeah. it? Yeah, I, I wonder if I'm just curious if you see a lot of commonalities between Brazil and Indonesia because of 1965 and what happened then and that shaped how the countries ended up becoming. So because of the U.S. Bakus, um, the countries became very capitalistic and authoritarian. And so I feel like when I look at Indonesia and Brazil, I draw a lot of like similarities in terms of, you know, like deforestation and Mm. uh, uh, the land grabs and also like religious extremism because maybe at least in Indonesia, Mm -hmm. it's because people, people associated atheism or agnostic with communism and so a lot of people became really religious to say like i am not communist Mm. um and and that gave a rise to a lot of things and after the you know I mean, in Indonesia, I think like also because the the dictator, like he really suppressed Islam. And so after he fell, like there was an uprising that felt mm. like, oh, because you oppressed us for so long, this is our time to rise up. Um, mm. I'm not really sure how it is in Brazil, but I do know in Brazil and Indonesia, it's very queer phobic. It's very homophobic. It's very mm-hmm. transphobic. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I wonder like, what is your experience with all of that? And also class inequality is so yeah, it's I mean, that's huge. Deep. So the thing was like 
the first question, like, why is the world divided between East and West? And then carrying these divisions, you know, like I am also from both sides. And then start to see how they're very alike in all this bullshit of patriarchy, cis heteronormativeness, and how is that creating a lot of violence, a lot of control. You know, it's like Sadiq uh, Malas with all this bullshit. Uh, and then start to see the roots of it. And of course, it's rooted on uh, European colonization. So then we need to go backwards. Mm-hmm. Like to sum in a few quotes what Brazil is. Portuguese, white, European colonizers, they invade Brazil in the 1500s. They give, they create genocide of the whole uh, native population. From that, they need to have a work in labor, then they start to sequestrate uh, and kidnap people from African countries and then enslave them. And then they start to create this system of oppression and labor and uh, economics to create this nation that was started with a genocide. And once Brazil was the last country to abolish slavery, mm. majority of the population was black and brown. Mm. So then the people in power who was this white supremacist, they, for them, was a problem to be a country majority non-white, and they needed to make the country white. After the abolishment, then Brazil opens it up for the migration, for labor, and a lot of people coming from Europe, Arab countries, Eastern Asia. And the thing for me was like, why are not a lot of people from Southeast Asia and South Asia in Brazil, when a lot of countries like the United States, Canada, or countries who were having a lot of uh, diasporic movements to be this labor force, like people from India, people from the Philippines, from Indonesia, and so on and on. Mm. Brazil had this project, political project called eugenics, which means mm. good genes. This is a racist um, agenda that they had mm. to make Brazil white. Yeah. So then I started to say, ah, the thing is that all these countries who were migrating to Brazil post-abolition of slavery, they had fair skin. Mm-hmm. And Brazil so their definition has, uh, of white is not European. It's like whoever that have like... Brazil has skin. a big problem of, of uh, colorism. The definition of white is the mentality. And that's mm-hmm. also why it's so hard to talk about racism and to point out where racism is in Brazil. Uh, mm-hmm. Because... A lot of people have this cue that they're mixed, that they are also descendants from Blacks. But actually, the thing is about colorism. The whiter you are, mm. the privilege you have. So I have white possibility in Brazil. And I, I need to understand the complexities of whiteness mm. to understand the, the whole problematic of, of the country, which mm. is deeply rooted. And then it comes together with classism, which is something that they mix and then becomes this monster. With Indonesia, then I start to see that some processes that were very close but different. So as I understand, there was not this whole genocide of the native population through the European colonizers, the, the Dutch, as it happened in, in Brazil. The Dutch did not have projects of mixing while the Portuguese they had. Mm-hmm. So the mythology of the Brazilian is the mixture of between blacks, whites, and indigenous. Mm-hmm. That's the, the mixture of three of them creates the Brazilian. Mm. And with Tocobucunhão, we were talking with Yudji Rafael, which is a Asian creator in Brazil, a Latin Asian creator in Brazil. And Yudji was talking about the process of creating the identities and why Asian Brazilians are constantly pushed as foreigners, mm. always. Mm. In Brazil, also in the late 19th century, when they were built, creating this mythology, they needed to put the boundaries. Okay, this narrative of mythology goes until this point. 
what was the point? What was the limit? Chinese. Chinese who were also migrating to Brazil to plant tea, they were like, this is not going to be incorporated within this mythology. Interesting enough, that's also how I draw the line with the Indonesian mythology. Like, what makes the new Indonesian after the independence of mm. um, the Netherlands? Okay, we have a diverse population. We uh, need to one way to unify them, but keep diverse. Who is part of it? So, as I know, the Dutch, they would economically give privilege to three ethnic groups, Indians, Arabs, and Chinese. They would be assimilated due to the religion, uh, the Islam religion. Mm-hmm. Indians, I don't have information about it. Maybe they were also assimilated because of Hinduism. And then the Chinese, then they start to be excluded. Maybe the biggest reason was the conflict with communism. And then all the time being in Indonesia and knowing more and more political information, of course, they start to do this back and forth. And then I start to realize more about Brazil. So for instance, being Joga, being Java, and this whole diversity of being ethnicities and cultures in Indonesia. People know that, oh, I'm Javanese, I speak Javanese. This other person is from Bali, has this other culture, speak another language from Sunda, and so on, so on, so on. So people have this notion of individuality and commonness. While in Brazil, because there's such a large and imperative nationalism, we often talk about Brazil as one, when the continental country, as big as the whole uh, European continent, mm. the population is almost the same as Indonesia, 240, 250 million mm. people, and so much diversity. Then I start to be more careful and understand that my experience from Brazil is from Sao Paulo, Southeast Brazil, mm. and I cannot talk about the Brazil being yeah. Brazilian. I, I really like his, in your bio, you said your, uh, what is it like? Penabucano artist um, and not like Brazilian artist. And like, I guess Ruth and I have been having this conversation where I feel like this whole idea of people saying I'm Indonesian is also very different. Like me saying I'm Indonesian is my experience in Jakarta, which is very different from maybe like someone in Makassar saying I'm Indonesian. Mm-hmm. They have an extremely different experience and someone from Manado has an extremely different experience. So, so yeah, I, I'm, I'm so, okay. So like me trying to understand. So in Brazil, like, I guess, like, do people understand that someone who is Brazilian still has Italian roots or Portuguese roots or German roots and not um, like indigenous Brazilian roots? Or is it all like, do people not see that level anymore? It depends. If you're part of a minority that has been constantly uh, harassed and going through racism and exclusion, then people do not acknowledge. Mm-hmm. But if you are part of this celebrated uh, ascendancy, which is completely related with this gaze towards Europe, or towards the United States or the global north, then it, people know, you know. Mm-hmm. But this is something more recent. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe because of the ex- extremisms that are coming up, people are also finding importance to acknowledge themselves always. Right this diversity of ethnicity, you know, like people, I've been seeing more and more progressively people being, finding, looking for, we're talking about ancestrals. Uh, and this is also my own prop, my own uh, path. You know, there was a moment that I, I was born and raised to be this cis, hetero, white person, culturally, which I 
many moments I tried, but I couldn't do it or I was excluded. And then with this pain of being excluded or not fitting, I understand I was not part of it. And then more and more, I start to understand the many identities that compose me. Mm-hmm. The thing about me describing myself as Pernambuco and, and Indonesian, when today it would be something like more Pernambuco, São Paulo, Java, <laughs> and then it goes on, on, on. But then yeah. recently, like maybe you should go back to Cypriot, to Brazil, Indonesia, which is a lo- already a lot. <laughs> <laughs> it was more to as attempt to connect with the roots because right, yeah. I think that's important. My mom, she's also migrant. Mm-hmm. And I'm still looking for ways to connect with, with where she's from, which is she's a, a, a thousand. She's Brazilian, but she's not from the southeast. She's from the northeast, which is a thousand five hundred kilometers away, which was also the only area colonized by the Dutch. Oh. And the interesting thing is that where she's from and where my father's from, Java, is in the same latitude line. Oh. So it goes mysterious again. Oh, is it is it that project that you did in Hong Kong? It's like Samarang and Gurunya or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Gurunya is a love affair between Samarang and Garanyus, like this latitude. They're both ah. being colonized by the Dutch. Uh, and then again, the topic that you guys like, uh, the food, like how the layered cake. I was able to find in the Netherlands. You have a version in where my mom is from and also one in, in Indonesia. You know? yeah. Like uh, how these things are, are here. You know? yeah. yeah. It's funny because I guess in the United States, there's been a lot of conversations about race and ethnicity, mainly race, I guess. And I think here in the United States, people say Latina, Latino, and they think like, Like, I think a lot of people think being Latin American is a race, whereas actually Latin American is like, you're still white, you're still black, you're still like indigenous, native. Um, I mean, the same way with uh, Asia, when people say like, you're Asian, yeah. like, but like, but like what? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So many of us. And, and that's the thing, because I'm very critical how people in the US call themselves Americans, while I'm also American yeah. because I was born in the American yeah. continent. Yeah. So yeah. I've been using how, but the thing is also majority of Brazilians, they also say in Portuguese, Americano. When people from Latin and other countries in Latin America, they use Estadounidenses, mm. which mm. My, is like United States. Mm. So there is this whole thing about who can be diverse, who cannot be diverse. And who power game, who can have control over everything and then you use the name and who has not. It's a whole diverse and complex system of diversity and accumulation of power. Like how people know, like in the US, say they're Irish, they are uh, from Medellin, German, uh, German Scottish. Uh, French, or mm. the diversity of whiteness. Mm. While if you're not from it, you're just from one place. Mm. You know, yeah. like you're black, yeah. you're Asian. When they're like, what is Asian when it comes from India to like even what's the limit? Yeah, even India and Bangladesh like is so different, different. you know. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's funny because like I feel like people from Latin America or specifically my experience with people from Peru and Ecuador, they say like I am American, like because I was born and raised in the Americas. And it's it's The, you know, in the United States, people have this idea that, oh, unless you are not from the United States, then you're not American. But so so I, I feel like that's also another thing, like people need to be specific saying United States versus America, which 
is, <laughs> you but know. Again, what we're talking about, for me, it goes back to this need of patriarchy has binarities. You know, like also when we talk about gender and the vast diversity of many expression and identity of gender, but then I go again, this imposition and this violence of making binary. Mm -hmm. Also, it goes to this invention of race, which was also a white invention, you know, like the, also the constant need to make it simple, make it small. And also, which is very much common in Brazil, white people, they don't perceive themselves as white. Yeah. And they, they, and that's also what makes it super hard but the complex thing when i was in indonesia i started to see the same pattern of behavior towards violence with other people who were not part of the majority that i saw very much with white versus indigenous versus black or versus uh, yellow people in, in brazil with indonesians and people from papua mm -hmm. and, and which we already spoke and brought a lot of in your program but then i started to think wow this is same behavior mm -hmm same abuse, the same violence, the same thing about removing rights for people who protect the forest. Mm. Uh, this is the same thing that's going on in Brazil. And then, you know, sometimes it's not different which religion, or which concept is still benefiting the cis hetero male. Mm. Uh, you know, so that for me, it's like, okay, they're just religion-wise, you know, like how majority of the West is Christian-based and a lot of countries are mm. Islamic-based. But still, they're very patriarch uh, patriarchy. Mm -hmm. They're still very uh, queerphobic. They're still very violent. They're still killing. Mm -hmm. And they're still dominating the land. They're still harassing the land and other beings beyond humans. Yeah. Uh, and then what's the difference? You know, of course, there are many. But Do you think it's just like pure, like all of this happened because of power or power and ignorance? Power and ignorance, I think they work, they walk along together. Mm -hmm. uh, like in my education, I also graduated as a teacher. And then in the graduation, we were going through step by step, like about laws. And then you start to get this stronger sense mm -hmm. how much politics are shaped by ignorance. And as, as right wing governments start to progressively take more and more power, they were taking more and more. Uh, taking down laws regarding education and taking away money of education and culture as well. So who controls power controls ignorance. And that's very important. How also the right wing, the, the uprising of right wing that we're still facing until nowadays, it was very much connected with fake, uh, fake news and then the social media. And also we need to name who are doing this. Like the, the person behind everything, Steve Bannon. He was the main uh, advisor of uh, Donald Trump, and then he was uh, advising all the right-wing governments. He was in Argentina. He was with Bolsonaro family. He was really. With the yeah. Steve Bannon was. Oh wow! Well, I didn't know that so, he was advising so, Bolsonaro. And then, of course, Donald Trump gave him the pardon uh, when in the last day of mm. government. So mm. we need to know who is the big villain. And there are public talks that he's talking about. Let them. Let them call us white supremacists. Let them call us racist. So they know what they're doing. And they are pretty much attuned with white supremacism, racism, and neo-Nazi agenda, you know? Right. Which is interesting because it connects to your argument about silence again. Because power also have silence, which is like contain all of the information all to itself, right? It's a different kind of silence, which is, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, that's also why with a lot of people when they, like for instance, a lot of trans friends, when they become visible, it can put them in danger. 
You know, yeah. they can have a lot of internet attacks and also physical attacks. And then the whole thing about how it's important to know how to navigate within silence. Mm -hmm. Me as a Gemini, it's extremely hard, but... <laughs> uh, but also how, like even like telling the names and, and being talking here about politics with you, which I think what you're doing is very brave. And also the possibility that we're not within the concept of Indonesia or even the concept of Brazil, we have the privilege to talk about politics. And maybe we have even the duty, you know, because we're more in a way protected. Yeah. Speaking of trans people and um, what was your experience in Jogja? Because I mean, I, I can't really say much, um, but I spent time in Jogja and I realized that from my experience is that people talk about countering the nationalism and they talk about human rights. But then when it comes to gender equality, people are still pretty ignorant about that. Like it's still extremely queer phobic because it's still in, in Jogja. Like tightly connected with religion, I think. Uh, like it's, it's screen how it's still like feminism is still like uh, it needs to be very much improved to, towards cis women. And that I was seeing a lot how specifically in Jogja, mm. male dominance is male dominance. That was one, one thing. There's, again, it was like being very careful to also understand what is the perception of gender here, which is, might be very different culturally what I've been educated. Then my experience was also like progressive. The first time I was in Indonesia, I went to Jakarta Biennale at the time, uh, the opening, there was a ritual performance by the Bisu. Mm -hmm. And when I saw that, I was completely blown away. I felt immense connection. And then I start to see that as like, okay, there's a lot of things here that I don't know regarding the possibilities of gender. And then, at that time, I also connected with the artist Tamara, uh, mm -hmm. which Tamara is super, super important for me. I, I admire her so much. I admire them so much also. This year, I was, I was able to be a little bit closer to her and see other possibilities. But there were things from my experience coming from Sao Paulo, who, like Brazil, uh, is the country that most kills trans people, specifically black trans women. Uh, and also the country who most consume trans pornography. There is this whole two sides of it, like desire of consumption and desire of killing, and both of them making this other beyond the binary as an object. So there is a process of dehumanizing. It's quite violent to be in Sao Paulo because the whole classism system, they also bring a lot of dehumanization. It takes away humanity from people, and racism does that as well. When in Georgia, there were easily seen divisions between gender and, and social class, but I didn't see a process of dehumanization as I saw and as I felt and experienced in Sao Paulo. And then there was one specific experience I was visiting Tamara. She was doing a, a research in Jomang. And then we were going there to see a performance of Elder Trends, very beautiful in this small city. So there was a moment where this group of, of trans friends would come and this was like a small city, mostly Islam people. And when this, this group arrived of trans women and nobody was harassing them, nobody was staring, giving the oppressive gaze towards them. That for me was super, super powerful and super overwhelming because 
if that situation would happen in Sao Paulo, it would be very different. It would be very violent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that for me, I, I took classes in EC, Jogja, traditional dance. And there would be very openly queer students there and everybody was fine. And that for me, okay, you have people in those spaces. What is the perception? And also studying a little bit more about the Bisu, how they were like one of the, the most uh, ancient ethnicities of Indonesia mm-hmm. and not having a genocide of the Asli, the, the natives of Indonesia, maybe a lot of diverse perceptions towards gender are still there, even though I also know there were genocides towards trans people. I also know there are a lot of violences. And unfortunately, the information that arrived from Indonesia to Brazil, who are very little, are majority about the violence towards uh, queer people from Aceh. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I felt being there, I needed to be very careful. Not because I was scared, but careful, not in the sense of, of fear, but careful of like, I need time to perceive this with calm. I need, I also need to understand that my perspective from this is it is foreigner in one way, but at the same time, I would connect with places that I wouldn't think of, of it. You know, sometimes mm-hmm. I thought I had this DNA memory, you know, mm-hmm. that some very small things would make a lot of sense. So specifically with gender, I still need time to understand how that is perceived there. And it's specifically with queerness, but I must say the cis and heterosexual supremacy, that was also very palpable mm-hmm. and very easy to see. Mm, yeah, yeah. Um, talking about your art, because Tokobukuliong is super, like, very different with what you've done previously, right? Would you say that you went out of your comfort zone for Tokobukuliong? For sure, for sure, for sure. It was not completely out of context because I'm very interested in many things that are about existence, you know, beyond death, mm-hmm. uh, what are we doing here live, thinking about time, and then the relationship with these other beings beyond human. And then ancestors play a, a big role, you know, because then all these memories that we carry, all the stories that we carry from our ancestors, how we are here, because a lot of people were able to struggle and survive the world and we are here existing. And then I, I think maybe Tokobukuleong was very important work because then I went we and I went full dive in one specific topic. It is a very specific project within everything I've done, but after it, I changed a lot. And the the challenging part was, it was a partner project, my authorship and Abelina's authorship. So this constant communication was one uh, one challenge. Can I ask like why you decided to work with her? Adelina, we have worked together. She was uh, assistant curator in the Biennale that I took part in Georgia Cut in 2017. And then we already worked. And as soon as I arrived, uh, Adelina asked me if I was interested to work in a project about my family because Adelina, she's expat coming from Romania and based and lives in more than five, six years she's in Georgia. Adelina is very also interested in the stories of the 50s because she's also from Romania and Romania was also communist. She's interested in the relationship between Eastern Europe and Southeast Asia. So this is one of the realm of her research. For me, because when I was arriving, I didn't have access or didn't know how to speak Indonesian, it was very important to work with people who know how to speak both languages and also who were very interested. And Adelina and I already have worked in the past. Mm. So I would collect the information, the emotional archive from the family 
And Adelina will be able to uh, reach out for a lot of information in Bahasa Indonesian and talk with people that right. I didn't have the skills yet mm-hmm. uh, to navigate. And then later on, when Chemeti hosted the project, it became this triangulation how it was very important also Chemeti to, to host it. Uh, we met the challenge. The hardest thing was how to make art with something so close, how to produce imagery, try to produce an emotional and sensorial experience with something that was so data-based and so mm-hmm. information-based and archive-based mm-hmm. and something so fresh and new. So Tokopokuliang was very experimental in, in one yeah. sense. I'm curious, but, like, why you decided yeah. to do this in 2020 in the midst of pandemic? I know that it's a, the format is online. I'm just curious, like, why 2020? I needed to go to Indonesia for my life, you know, like uh, I needed to stop everything and understand I didn't have access. That's the thing. I didn't have any access of information in Brazil, like uh, a more complex and going to Indonesia for the first time, something and like, okay, this is the type of information you need to be there on a daily basis for a long time. Mm-hmm. It's not something you, you're going to find in the internet. And also specifically, if I would be able to find, it would be coming from English. Mm-hmm. Then it will already be translated by someone oh, who has yes. this experience. Right. And I need to, okay, it's time to go. Now, now it's the moment, now it's the time. It cannot be later. And then also to do this movement of starting from zero, uh, it was the moment that was also willing to it and open to it. Then right as I arrived, Adelina brought the idea, then we started to do this project independently without any institution backing us up. We went independently also to Maran to do the research. And then when Chemeti had us, we wanted to do a physical exhibition. But it was very challenging. How are we going to bring all the dimensions, this complex dimension that we want to bring, like politics, identity, migration, comic books, which themselves are very completely different yeah. topics. How to put that everything in one space and make art for it? you know a physical space so as pandemic broke we had enough time to decide are we going to invest this as a physical exhibition when i also had a limited time to be in indonesia i needed to mm-hmm. I, I, i needed to go so let's do it online because we are going to be able to do it better mm-hmm. and when we went online actually it was a great solution because all these complex topics we were able to address them in a hyperlinguistic sense but also each one with calm and time. Mm. At the end, it was very important amid pandemic to do that because my whole experience there in Indonesia changed a lot. You know, like when pandemic broke, I was starting to have like this more lancharia, uh, more uh, fluid sensation about going up and down, understanding the social conducts and being more engaged. And then pandemic broke, go back to Mm. being in the house but if it wasn't pandemic this project wouldn't happen because i needed to sit my ass and and <laughs> study and, and work you know and yeah. yeah and i feel like i i mean i'm really grateful that it's digital and virtual because mm. more people all over the world can access it otherwise you know it's only available for people who are physically in Georgia. And, and also it was very important for us to be trilingual because there was a moment that we were deciding how much, what's going to be, you know, then that was like, it needs to be fully Brazilian Portuguese. Otherwise the people who, the first people who need to know about this whole story and this organization of archive that we did are the people from my family. And they only, majority of them 
only knows Portuguese. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. English also for international, so other people from all over could act as a, as a common language or a more accessible language. And then Indonesian, it was also super important as well. So then overall, I understood in this project and making this project, I also understood what I've been doing in the past that I'm working towards a narrative reparation. Because for me, my education as artist, I always have this question, how to contribute for society, for human and ecological society. And then with what I've been studying and practicing and doing. So with this, I, I thought, well, Tokobukulen was a narrative reparation. We were able to bring that my grandmother, she was one of the authors of We were able to make a narrative reparation between the people from the family. And also we were able to bring the stories from our side because there is a lot of archives and texts and articles wondering who was the author of or writing wrong data about it. Mm-hmm. So we were able to tell the story from our side and also working with the past works that are very different from what I've been doing. I also always think that that's uh, narrative reparation as well. I love that term, narrative reparation. Which is what a lot of people are doing, you know, like when we, like you, what you guys doing is narrative reparation. I mean, the reason why we're doing this is because we want to learn more about uh, Southeast Asia because we don't learn about Southeast Asia in school, you know. For me, and because actually, I grew up in Indonesia. And actually for me, that was the, the first way to actually know more information best way to know otherwise by storytelling or the people who live the experience of tell by their own words what it was like. I actually interviewed the women of my family from both sides. And that was the, the first source of connection that I had, sitting down with my aunt, asking them what was the first thing they remember from their lives and asking them what they remember about the migration. And it was a way also to heal because me as a child was very hard to comprehend my Indonesian family. It was very difficult. It was painful. Um, and that already talking about culture shock. Only when I became adult and I started to see myself in them and I felt the need to know more about them. And then I started to make peace and connect and have affection and develop love as well, you know. So this project of Boko Leong is also a testimony about love. The Black Lives Matter movement is super narrative reparation. But the thing is, what needs to be repaired? I think that's also important for people who are doing that to know where is the trauma, where is the issue, where is the wound, mm-hmm. what needs to be repaired, what cannot be repaired, what needs to be healed. Mm-hmm. Also, why to go, I, I knew that I, I was carrying a lot of trauma from this mm-hmm. migration. And I didn't want to carry that longer. Mm. So I needed to do the movement to connect with Indonesia to understand the sources mm. of it. Mm. Like I was making the, the count, like today, like direct Indonesian descendants from the Lee family, there are in Brazil, there are 35. And I was the only one who did this diasporic movement, you know, to right, right, learn the language, right. to go uh, back to live and connect. You know. It's interesting because you said like you don't want to carry this burden any longer. But then on Tokobukulion, I think chapter one, you talk about our inability of forgetting. So can we really like leave like for you the trauma behind or is it just going to be there and then be silent? I mean, it was Adelina who brought it and then we start to work on this term from it. Uh, 
the thing is sometimes how to deal with trauma. You know, we, we need to face it mm-hmm. and not just put, uh, pretend it doesn't exist. And that sometimes it goes my critique towards the silence. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, many times I felt this cultural way of dealing with silence is putting, I'm not going to deal with it. This does not exist. Mm-hmm. We're not going to be able to talk about it, you know. And I also, I don't blame that because I think some, a lot of people need that to survive. Yeah. Uh, I also understand that I had conditions to go to Indonesia. You know, I had emotional, psychological, and even financial conditions to go to Indonesia, mm-hmm. uh, which a lot of people from my family that didn't go, uh, maybe they didn't have any of those conditions, you know. And maybe that, that's also why we wanted to do uh, a public and often many language so people could access that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that become a testimony. The thing is, like, maybe we cannot forget, but we can deal better with it, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. because we are made of traumas as well. Yeah. But the thing is, like, how to deal with it and how to understand that something is part of your life and that we moved on. Because to forget is, is very dangerous. And that's yeah. what mm-hmm. happens a lot in Brazil as a culture and in politics. They want people to constantly forget. And then we go back again to ignorance and power. You know, it's very important that people forget the struggles. It's very important that people forget about the fights, about who was the person inflicting the wound, who still is inflicting the wound. And then we're talking about yeah. white supremacists. Yeah. yeah. Do you think Bolsonaro will have another term, like second term? I'm dealing with Brazil nowadays as my toxic ex who I want to silence it, but it's impossible to silence it. And it's been persecuting me violently, not in the sense politically, but as this, there is one thing I need to be very careful about being immigrants because I am not living a full complex experience in a territory when the news comes. So for instance, wherever you are, if there is something happening in your neighborhood and somebody who doesn't live with you in the same country, and get this news from abroad can be very scared that this something can harm you. But actually, that's one thing that's happening in diverse things that happening in the day. The thing with Brazilian media and maybe also from the United States, they are very interesting to use fear and and, and horrible news to sell media. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then, as I was in in Indonesia when it completed a year, I was living there. I realized it's been 365 days that I only get this grace news from Brazil. And the political situation is very hard, horrible political situation. But at the same time, because of being there are many weird moments, politically wise, it's not only that. It's a country that has 220 million people. Again, to your, your question, I don't doubt it. Mm-hmm. Because the thing is, this president represents a lot what the country is. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's like Donald Trump also represents a lot of what USA is. Mm-hmm. Like all these yeah. extreme right wings yeah. who are getting to power elected, even though there are many strategies to elect them, but they were elected. They do represent a lot of things. I What I hope is that people realize that he's not eligible. And that's the problem because... With his partnership with the military, that we have a, a, a military coup d'etat. And what we've been seeing with the Global South, the uprising of the yeah. new military coup d'etat with Myanmar, yeah. with yeah. a lot of like Thailand situation. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's scary. Yeah. Very, 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 very scary. It's horrifying. Yeah. It's like we turn back to the past again. 
Milan going back to the past. I, I read someone that said history never repeats itself, but it rhymes. You know, it creates mm. rhymes. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. I, I don't remember who said that, but I I read it recently. I was like, okay, this is it's better, you know, uh, to to deal with in this perspective. Mm -hmm. uh, because yeah, it's, it's not being able because also Brazil is made with a lot of dualities. Like when Bolsonaro was elected, the most famous pop singer is Pablo Vittar, who is this queer drag uh, superstar pop singer who's more famous than uh, RuPaul. And then how come you have those two things at the same time? You know, yeah. like there was mm -hmm. uh, like also it's legal in Brazil for you to legally and it, they're making it easier, not so bureaucratic to legally change your gender status and also change your name. Mm -hmm. So how come the Supreme Court approved that with this president? Right. You know? Yeah. So yeah. it is a country made also of extreme dualities. Right. So yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Is there a talk to uh, rebuild Toko Buku Liong in Semarang again? No, this is over and done. Um, yeah. There isn't no no need. Like I, I think what we did there was a moment what we were how we were working because Toko Buku Liong there was two enterprises. They were important books uh, as a bookstore uh, selling imported books, and at the same time they were a publishing company. So my mother and my father they were being the people who were creating and also the business administration of it. And when we were doing tohubukuleong.com in Chemati, there was a moment that we were working the same way, like producing content, producing uh, mm -hmm. all together and all these layers, uh, sending information for the designer and, and talking with the curators, talking with the institution, talking mm -hmm. and thinking about the content. And it got into this rhythm of publication, you know, which was super interesting. But then a lot of people ask me if I want to republish Widow at Nothing by Indonesia, which is mm -hmm. super famous. Like there is even like news that Barack Obama, when he was in teenagers in Indonesia, that was one of his most favorite it comic books. Mm -hmm. And also Temple Magazine in 2008 made this 100 most important literary pieces of Indonesia. And, Toko, and Widow was number 88, I guess, or 84. So mm -hmm. that was also shocking for me. And some people ask me if I want to republish my answer, like, definitely not, because that comic book has a lot of values that I do not agree. And then the last volume of Tokuboku Leong, I was thinking, I made a continuation of Widow, which like, what if Widow was still alive and was dealing with all these patriarchal values that he imposed? You know, so I was connecting Widow and people killing the animals in the forest with the destruction of the ecosystem for palm soil in Indonesia, palm oil in Indonesia. And comics, they were as strong as social media is today in the 40s and 50s. They were shaping subjectivity, you know. And me being an artist, I don't know, things are not just art. You know, I, I know how they can be very powerful in many layers. And because it was republished without the consent of my family twice, In the 60s, it was originally published in the 50s, and then again in the 60s, and then the 80s. Like, so it made sense. And in this sense, they also erased the authorship of them. I don't know if they erased because easier to take the authorship or to republish, or because it was related with someone with a Chinese name. So how can you do a propaganda of this Javanese-centric identity when the name of the person who's made it, it has a Chinese name there. 
It's funny because a lot of the ethnically Chinese Indonesians actually supported like this Javanese supremacy superiority kind of thing like when the japanese military invaded indonesia like the a lot of the ethnic chinese indonesians fought back but then ended up getting massacred for it and it's like we were trying to help you but then you killed that that kind of um that kind of mindset yeah. that, that's the thing also in Guro, like who are the villains so there's one moment that the japanese army are the villains another moment a dutch person and then who are the friends there's this couple of united Stadiums who are the friends mm. sometimes even the animals or another ethnicities from different islands that were also the enemies but what you said uh alexandra i when i start to navigate more about this whole research i really thought how we need to be careful and not binary with some terms, specifically with decolonizing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I understand what Indonesia was doing after the independence of the Netherlands. It was a decolonial process, which I completely agree to take to distribute right, privilege. Right, right. But that also opened for so much and became uh, frail. It brought a lot of fragility for the political system. And I also connect that with later on 65 the military kudeta in Indonesia and also the massacre and the genocide towards Chinese ethnicities or people who mm. are related with communism um, mm. that the movie Act of Killing talks a lot about. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for saying that because one of the things that to this day that I'm still trying to understand is in the West, in North America and South America, when you talk about the native population it's like talked about like how the Europeans, the colonizers came and sort of like obliterated the indigenous population. And now the indigenous native population like continues to be um, oppressed, right? Mm-hmm. But then in Indonesia, like the term native or uh, indigenous is is like the term for superiority. Um, mm. And so... I think like that's something that I'm still like trying to understand, right? Like if you want to take pride in decolonization, can you really take pride in the term that you also use to oppress other people? And and that's, you know, I guess like that is the question of untrust and translatability i don't know if you were there mm-hmm. during the um there's a governor the indonesia the jakarta governor right now he made a speech um where he was like oh this is the time for like the native people to rise up and he used a word that that mm-hmm. means yeah pribumi which means like the you mm-hmm. know the native people but Technically, that word has been banned because that word historically has been used by the dictator to oppress like the ethnic. Oh, wow. So so I feel like, you know, like if we're talking about it in English, like there is no direct translation or if there is a direct translation, it doesn't carry the same meaning and the same like historical context in a word and and yeah like i i still have trouble like trying to explain this to people because like things are untranslatable and i'm also still learning and under trying to understand a lot of things i think about three things when you said that the first one is like the understanding of 
ethnicity or raciality or whatever, the vision changed from place to place. So the understanding of whiteness in Europe is very different from the understanding of whiteness in Brazil. Uh, and then the second thing I think about is how also this, for the construction of this mythology that you're actually telling, it's like comic books, you need to tell the origin and why some comic books are from every five years telling again the origin of this superhero that we already know, you know. They also need to do that as a political strategy. And that's also what happened with Indonesia and Brazil, in my perspective. Mm-hmm. And with this, they also need to talk about the origin as humanity, you know, uh, the origin and then how also in Brazil, in the military time, they were also talking a lot about the pride of being indigenous, of this origin being indigenous, which what you tell me, it rings some bells about this, you know, like talking about origin when actually the origin doesn't exist mm-hmm. because you're always going to push backwards and more backwards and backwards. Like me going to Indonesia, trying to find an origin and then I arrive, people tell me there are even more things, you know, uh, yeah. more complexities. And then the first thing I think about is like this process of coloniality, which is after the European colonizer leaves, the system that they leave behind makes sure that the structure of power maintains, uh, not only politically, but also subjectively. So how this whole power play of using these terms of this identity to control and to violence uh, and, and, and construct power, you know, and identity as well. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's very similar the way that a lot of politics enterprises in Indonesia are treating people from Papua. When I was there, there was this big uprising regarding this very racist way someone from Indonesia called someone from Papua. Mm-hmm. And the way they're treating people who have the majority of power working, uh, treating a minority, being violent towards a minority, mm-hmm. this is the same way, same structure, same way that's going on in Brazil. Mm-hmm. Uh, towards indigenous, towards black people, towards people from Kimobala, like uh, this uh, black communities, uh, alternative black communities, mm-hmm. and even other, other layers of other ethnicities. So that for me informs me about this coloniality, how even though it's been independent from the mm. colonial but it's still but working. The model, the model of colonization is being done, yeah. There is no such a thing as post-colonial because mm. at the end, Indonesia, majority of the economic is related with China and USA, mm-hmm. the same way Brazil is connected with the global north, with China, Europe, and Canada and United States, you know? Mm. The whole thing about the current government in Brazil is to give profit to the global north Mm -hmm. and to use the bodies and to use the people, to use the labor, to use the resources. So it gives privilege to global north. Mm -hmm. And then they need to maintain this structure of oppression. So that's also for me, I felt like at the end, the larger power who's controlling wherever I went in the experience that I had, it wasn't different. It was patriarchal, it was capitalism, it was towards consumerism, it it was this gender normative, heteronormative. Are you now working on future projects that have connection with Indonesia? I am, uh, which is still a little bit secret, but they're all going to come out this year. So... Uh I mean, okay, so we book you by the end of this year to talk about your project. <laughs> We're going to book you back to talk about your other project. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I'm very interested to connect Brazil and Indonesia. Is there a big Indonesian community there? Um, I would say 
there's a concentrated Indonesian population, but it's not like big, big, big like big. San. So mm-hmm. San Francisco, like in the United States, I would say San Francisco is where most of the Indonesian diaspora is. Mm. Yeah. So there's that, and then there's um, another big Indonesian population in Philadelphia. Mm. Okay. Wow. Wow. Super. Because also for me, like a few weeks before I was living in Brazil, I met some uh, creative, foreign creator and person from Suriname. And then said like, oh, but you know that in Suriname, there's a lot of yeah, uh, people from Javanese. And I'm like, what? Yeah. And the thing is that Suriname and uh, French Guiana, they are mm-hmm. neighbors of Brazil, but I never from Sao Paulo got news from it. Like I never saw in the newspaper, I never saw anything. And I was like, why don't we have any sort of communication or information coming from that? You know, it's why it's so hard. Mm-hmm. And when she told me about it, I was super shocked. You know, like, how come I didn't know there was like this huge community of Indonesians, way closer than Indonesia. Mm-hmm. But I thought it was super, super interesting as well, because they went in the 17th century, mm-hmm. uh, taken by the Dutch. Mm-hmm. And then the thing is that they, they say that until nowadays, so then they actually didn't become Indonesians, what yeah. I think is quite interesting. Yeah. Uh, so they are. Maybe the formal way to say there, there's a Japanese mm. uh, diaspora and not an Indonesian mm. diaspora, right? Yeah, yeah. Like in the future, I still want to uh, find ways and find means to promote residencies of Brazilian artists in Indonesia and the other way around as well. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of moments when I was there in Indonesia, I really thought about a lot of artists from who I love. Like even Juliana de Santos, who interviewed me, Juliana has a research with Clitoria Tenatia, this blue flower. Yeah. We were friends for a long time and she was already doing this research. And then one day, while well, I'm in Indonesia and she was already doing it for like three years of research. This plant is originally from Indonesia. from Indonesia. Yeah, yeah. And we both fell back, you know, we were like, what? You need to come here. And as I was in Jogja, I would see that plant all over, you yeah. know, and always think about her research and her work. And then, so things are going to come. I'm, I'm, uh, follow me in my social media, Lee Dan Lee. And there I, I put everything that's going to come when the project is ready to be shared. Yeah. Okay. Should we ask our last questions, Alexandra? Yeah. So we always ask these two questions as a closing part. So one is what need to be, well, because your background is so diverse. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's like normally, yeah. <laughs> <is it? laughs> we normally ask like, what, what are the misconceptions that need to be dismantled about the mother, mother country? But then it's like you're Brazilian and Indonesian. Um. <laughs> It's important the, the thing about misconceptions. I've been thinking like how it's important to take away the misconception of origin, that mm. origin does not exist. Mm. And looking for origin is very dangerous because it, it's connected with the ideology of white supremacism. The other thing about misconceptions that I try to do in my social media is like try to bring some information approach, both universe who are very similar to Brazil and Indonesia. There are a lot of things like rituals. I love the theory that the indigenous from South America are from Southeast Asia. There is the biggest theory regarding the human occupation of the Americas that they came from the North through the Ice Age walking. But there are other theories that talk about the entrance through Chile uh, and then the from South, they went navigation through it. And some experience that I had with ethnicities, indigenous ethnicities in Brazil, 
I thought they were like very, they looked like a lot from my family. And then going to Indonesia the first time and seeing some pictures of different ethnicities that were not easy to access. Saw a lot of things there that, were, that resemble some images from indigenous in Brazil. And then the features, they're alike and many other information they were navigating. And then I was in Borobudur Museum, uh, Archaeological Museum, and then they had like these boats and the routes of navigation around Indonesia. And then was one drawing showing towards South America. And this is super important because then we start to talk about a connection south to south through the Pacific and not mm. a connection via Europe that goes through the Atlantic. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about another way to communicate. We're talking about another ways to connect. And I also understand that this theory is not much talked about because we're also talking about power structures between who holds the power of history, who holds the power yeah. of story. Talking about misconception, I think when we talk about origin and we talk about one narrative only, one uh, vision only, that's a big misconception to look for and search for only this one when actually things are very diverse and that's how we are. Yeah. So to take away the misconception that to go for the origin is always going to be frustrating because there's no such a thing as origin. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, that's a really good one. I love yeah. that. So when you talk about how they um, migrated to Chile, is it like from the Malay archipelago or is it like Mongolia? Like, uh, I'm just wondering. I, I, I hope that this podcast brings more people that knows better this information, this research, so we can study as well. I think this is the good thing about making this information that I'm not mm -hmm. sure public. What I understand is from the Malay archipelago. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah, and I hope some people send more information or tell them, no, you're not right. You're, this is the, the information from text that I'm yeah. really looking for. Cool. If, if you're a listener and you know the answer, you can email us. Thanks for research. Thanks for research. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested because I was watching this YouTube video about someone um, going to like Barrio Chino in Mexico and I think in like Argentina or something. And um, a lot of the comments were saying that do you know that the indigenous Mexicans and like people in um, Argentina were from the southern part of China? That's why a lot of Mexicans kind of look Chinese, but they don't even know their background. Mm -hmm. And then we talked to um, Sarnt, who um, is Thai, also in Berlin, who's also in Berlin, and he's also Thai. And he talked about how, you know, this, I get like Southeast Asia mix of ethnicities, a lot of them are from southern part of China. China. So I'm like, is that like mo that area, like southern part of China and Mongolia, they sort of like, you know, spread around in like maybe the seventh century or something like the, I, I'm that's just, the, the, the interesting thing because the comparison, like Brazil started in 1500s and everything we don't have, don't have in school, like 1499, you know, everything before we don't have it, it was lost, it's suppressed, they, they want to forget. Oh. Uh, and while, even though Indonesia as a nation started in 45, there are a lot of red, uh, yeah, historical like ancient kingdoms, ancient kingdoms like from Dulu, 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 yeah. from a long time ago. And then it's quite interesting because then we, okay, when did the Chinese spread? When did the Arabs spread? So during my research, I was studying the sacred plants in the Quran. And then one of the plants is from the Chinese area. So that what does mean that the, they were making business, Arabs and Chinese, before the mm. 
So what it, what it says is actually the world has always been globalized. You know? Like people have always been moving around and mixing and creating from, from long, long, long time ago. The thing mm-hmm. is that this count of age and time with Christ, it also is a, a mythology creation and erasure mm-hmm. of everything that came in the back. And of course, this patriarchal capitalist society, consumerism, doesn't want to say that there were people long time ago who were more intelligent with better technology being relating with this world in a better way. They don't want to acknowledge that. They want to have this progressive idea that the next thing is better, the new is important, the old must gone, you know? So the second question, what is your favorite Indonesian dish that you had in Indonesia and also one that your family always made in Brazil? Bakwan, like that was like, because like the recipe my family does is with corn and shrimp. And Krupo, you know, like that would be like weekend at grandfather's. Mm-hmm. And then a proper meal, like Indonesian meal, my aunts would cook and they cook really well. Mm-hmm. They would only cook when it was like a special family occasion, like a birthday of my grandfather or Christmas. So it would be like twice a year that I would eat Indonesian food. And then I go to live in Indonesia as like this food every day. And <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Um, but what is your but, favorite one when you were gado, in Indonesia? Gado-gado? Really? Because my, my, my aunt, they would cook gado-gado. So bakwan, for sure, gado-gado and krupo. Like this very much affection food, you know, because they were mm. also the food I was eating mm. since child. And this rarity of this delicious food, I would have it. And I, I even trying to learn how to make it, which is quite simple. But, uh, <laughs> but it's hard to get the... It's hard to get the, the ingredients. Exactly. Jogja was being able, but here, galactically. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. My father loves uh, babi ketchup. This is like, he oh. loves, like I was like that again, like eating again babi ketchup. <laughs> loves babi ketchup. And then there was a time when I was living with him a long time ago that he would eat so much. I was like, oh, I cannot eat this anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, uh, bicara baik sekali, uh, bahasa Inggris dan bahasa Portugis. Uh, saya bisa bahasa Spanyol juga, uh, tapi untuk menulis tidak pas. Uh, bahasa Indonesia juga, tapi masih belajar banyak untuk berbicara baik sekali. Sekarang mulai belajar bahasa Jerman juga. So, uh, muchas palabras uh, en Spanyol y bahasa Indonesia son, son igual, ¿no? Sí, 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 sí. Por eso que fue más fácil para mí para aprender a estudiar bajas sí. en Venecia, porque la misma pronunciación, hay sí. pocas diferencias. Me encantó también que no hay género. I also wanted to learn bajas en Venecia because there is no gender, like only one for now, mm-hmm. you know? No time, uh, verbal, like in Portuguese English, like this verbal flex. Mm-hmm. For me, it was also very important, like learning a language shaped reality, the mm-hmm. way you Like you both call speak other languages. I perceive that the way you think in one language 
it's very different the way you think in another language, the way we perceive the reality. Mm. And then it was also very interesting, well, a language that has only one pronoun. Yeah. How does that gender yeah. is perceived and also how is time perceived as well? Mm. And then arriving the whole thing about math, back, back, uh, Ibu, uh, I thought, okay, they found their way too. Yeah. In the things. But like in Brazilian Portuguese, it's like in Spanish, everything has gender. It's like everything. Uh, they even I have third gender. The, the they, they have the neutral, which is already part of it. Like, but that's the new creation, at least in Brazilian Portuguese, and I think also in Castellano in Spanish, to create new rules. And a lot of people reject so much because it's something completely new. Mm. To learn every language, I also need to learn how it's. Like I'm still confused how the way to address in a non-binary way in Indonesia, Bahasa Indonesia, is kake. To call to call like like mba or mas instead of saying ba or yeah. mas, you just say kaka, right? Yeah, kaka. yeah. Shout out to Guru Jenny, my my amazing teacher. I, I'm really really working towards, and I want to work towards be fluent in it. Like for me, it's still quite hard to. Navigating communicating in formal and informal way when the majority of things written is informal. This whole division sometimes informs me that I'm actually learning two languages. So for a long time in Georgia, I was like, how come I can talk and understand at the same time I cannot understand anything and say anything, you know? Like, I also think this is something related with how Bahasa Indonesia has influence from Japanese. So I'm sticking only to Indonesian for now. <laughs> <laughs> But I guess you know like a little bit Japanese, no? Uh, very little, like orapopo, nga, kekarane, As always, we encourage you to dig deeper about the topics that we talked about. In this episode, we covered a lot about coloniality, the power structures that continue on after former colonialism ended. If you haven't already, we urge you to check out Daniel's project, tokobukuliyong.com. It's fascinating info, all free and accessible for anyone with internet. Follow Daniel on Instagram at Lee Dan Lee for more updates about their work, including the recently launched Rotten TV, a tri-continental project which explores the ideas of life, death, and ecosystem renewal. Thanks for listening, and until our next feast. Thanks for research. Thanks for research.